Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. In 1661, the town we now call Quebec City stood in exactly the same spot. Just like today, it had an upper town, it had a lower town, and busy docks on the bank of the St. Lawrence River. The town's population was much smaller, of course, just around 700 people, most of them French, some of them Wendat. Every resident professed to be a Catholic, unless you count the demon. The town's authority figures felt concerned about the demon. They wrote letters to relatives in France mentioning their ongoing attempts at exorcism. It doesn't work. Things get stranger. And the servant does supply us with a name of who is responsible for sending the demons. Mary Cowan is a historian at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. She's been piecing together this strange story, Canada's first documented case of a, quote, demon possession induced by witchcraft. Mary reports her findings to Ideas producer Tom Howell. It must be fun to do this because you've got just enough information to put together a story, but enough obliterated that <laughs> it requires quite a lot of uh, imaginative. Such a good historic novel, wouldn't it? Yeah. Or film, I know. I'm thinking Denis Villeneuve should... Okay. direct this movie. All Obviously, right. he did a good job with Dune, so mm-hmm. he could do this. <laughs> he could pick his friend Timothy Chalamet to play whomever he wants. <laughs> I'm completely in favor of this. Well, I mean, if they do make a movie of this, presumably you've got the job snagged as the historical consultant or whatever to make sure it's I guess it's they legit. probably have to, yeah. But if yeah. someone needs to play me, I don't know, Sarah Polly, maybe? <laughs> yeah, I don't I'm know open if, to suggestions. I don't know if you get into the... I suppose you could be a weird haunting figure around at the time. Or do they the, frame it as the historian oh, doing the work you see? In now you're talking. I don't know. I don't know. Wouldn't be up to me. A good place to start this story would be in June 1659, which is when the central characters arrive. You can imagine yourself in the scene, riding a horse through the streets of Lower Town, clip-clopping over the cobbles. You would not be clip-clopping down the streets of Quebec City. Why not? There were no horses there yet. Oh. A single horse had been given as a gift to the governor in 1647. But there were no more horses in New France until 1665. Oh boy, so if I was actually clip-clopping down the street, I would have just stolen the governor's horse? Uh, if, the, if the governor's horse were even still alive. Oh, did it die? Do we know? We don't know. Oh. Or at least I don't know. Okay, so we don't know I'm not clip-clopping down the street. We just, it's I very unlikely. It's implausible. Implausible <laughs> you'd be clip-clopping down the streets. Mary's job is to consider the possible, investigate the plausible, and present us with the probable and the certain. It's called a micro-history, 
and it zooms you right in. When you walk down to the lower town, you'd pass by a fort of the Wendat, some of whom had moved into Quebec City. And upon arrival at the lower town, right at the shore of the river, you would see commercial buildings and also some houses. House construction varied. Settlers brought what they knew from France. Some of the houses would be in stone, some would be in wood. Most would be in a half-timber construction, and almost all would have steeply pitched roofs to shed snow. How do we know this? Were there pictures or...? We have some pictures. We have maps and plans from the time that include drawings of the buildings. We have descriptions of travelers, and we have the archaeological record. Our sources for the soundscape are not so direct as the sources for what you would have seen in Quebec in 1659. And a way to think through this is to remember that we tend not to note average everyday sounds. People did note sounds that were unexpected to them. So for example, when the St. Lawrence River was deeply frozen one February and an earthquake happened, that ice cracked and made a very loud noise and people were marked on that. Most of the time, though, we can imagine people would have heard river sounds. They would have heard water lapping against the shores, people loading and unloading vessels without recording those noises. We can still presume they heard them. They would have heard bells rung out from the church several times per day. Once in a while, they might have heard cannons, either firing to defend the town or to celebrate the arrival of of new people. Microhistory is not fiction, but what Mary does resembles what an author does, because she wants to immerse us in this historical moment, and so she considers all the sensory details. Early modern travelers often remarked on the smelliness of towns. Mm -hmm. They could smell the stench when they approached the town. This is just everywhere? Many towns smelled strong (laughs) to people's noses. (laughs) Quebec probably smelled less strong than a lot of other towns. Explain. Well, it was still fairly small. It was still fairly new as a European settlement, and it had a fast-flowing river into which they could dump a lot of refuse. So when travelers came to Quebec from France, one thing they often noted was that it had a lot of clean air. They may have called it clean air because they weren't smelling strong smells. Right. We're talking about poo here, aren't we? It's just not... Or maybe bodies in this... Could be, yes. A few (laughs) years later, we have evidence of a cemetery getting a little overly full and bad smells emanating or exhaling from the corpses. We're talking about the byproducts of light industry, such as tanning, which would could leave a pretty bad smell too, and human refuse, yep. Right. So the fact that even people pointed out that a cemetery was starting to smell, uh, can you even extrapolate from that and say, well... In Europe, that wasn't unusual. You know, maybe that shows that the air usually was better that they bothered to complain about this. Oh, I wonder. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. It's, it's possible. They wanted to keep the air cleaner than what they had known. You were promised a story about a demon. It's getting closer. Looking out from the docks of Lower Town, we see a ship on its way up the St. Lawrence. And if someone does ever make a movie about this, I imagine they will want to shift point of view here. So we're on the boat now, yes? One of the things to keep in mind about Quebec City, this is still true today, obviously, but it's tidal. This is where the tide reaches from the St. Lawrence. My name is Colin Coates. I teach Canadian Studies and History at Glendon College, York University, and my main area of research is early French Canada. 
Quebec City is this military site because of the, the hill at Quebec and the narrowing of the St. Lawrence that should allow an army to defend it against an invader. So it's a very good military position. At this early period of French settlement, it's the, the area around Quebec is still going to be very much surrounded by forests. There, there is a certain amount of farmland that has been cleared. Forests would be what would dominate us. If you were sailing up the St. Lawrence River and avoiding all the shoals along the way so you don't have a shipwreck, which is an ever-present danger, you're coming to Quebec, you are still going to see a ring of forests all around you. So just a small area of European settlement carved out of, uh, out of the surrounding forest. You could see everything from the shore. Mary can't just speculate, but the rest of us can. So envision a sullen-looking man on this boat. He seems to be a passenger, but none of the other passengers are hanging out with him. And we soon see why. A passing child slips on the wet deck boards. And this man does nothing to help. To make it worse, maybe he kicks a dog or a chicken or something. This man's face remains obscure. While we're waiting for the boat to arrive, this would be a good opportunity in the movie for the camera to pan over to a supporting character looking at a map. New France will expand over the next decades in a sense that the French will claim lots of territory in North America, but in fact, they don't really occupy it in a meaningful way. These are indigenous-controlled territories still. Now another passenger comes over, and now these two guys are just discussing New France and the political context of 1659. Early on in this period, pre-1663, I would say the French are more an irritant. This is Scott Berthelet. He's obviously not on the boat, is he? He's a historian at Queen's University. Samuel de Champlain sort of places the French as a belligerent power in 1609 when he participates in the first ever battle that the French will participate in against the Haudenosaunee, the Battle of Lake Champlain in 1609, where Champlain fires his arquebus, this sort of early prototype of a, a rifle, at uh, the Haudenosaunee, and he allegedly in this battle kills three Haudenosaunee uh, chiefs. We get the sense when Samuel de Champlain makes his first alliances with the, the Innu, the Wendat, and several Algonquin nations who live in the Ottawa Valley, that they are already at war with the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. And to become allies and trade partners with these peoples, uh, Champlain basically uh, implicates the French in this ongoing conflict. However, there is a sense that in recent years, the violence and the warfare between the Haudenosaunee and the Innu Wendat Algonquins has actually increased. From the indigenous perspective, we, we can overemphasize the importance of the Europeans in their midst. The, the Haudenosaunee are really interested in the other indigenous nations around them, the Wendat. So when they displace the Wendat, one of the things they do is they adopt many of them into their population. Uh, indigenous people are dealing with massive 
declines in their population because of imported diseases that Europeans have brought over with them. And so the Haudenosaunee, this is part of the Haudenosaunee reaction, is to integrate other Indigenous people into their into the group. They are a political power. You know, one way to conceive of this in this time period is that the, there's a, a French military power to a certain extent, but there's a Haudenosaunee, very important Haudenosaunee political power, the Dutch and the English as well. So there's different groups. And the Haudenosaunee are very astute at playing off different groups against the other. The French policy actually saves the Haudenosaunee to a certain degree. Early on, the French refused to trade firearms and other weapons with non-Catholics. And as it turns out, the Jesuits do not have a very successful conversion rate in their Wendat mission. Most Wendats are interested in Catholicism. They're willing to experiment with Catholic rites and rituals and prayer. But for the most part, the Jesuits do not see the wholesale conversion that they are expecting. And therefore, they refuse to trade firearms to a lot of their Wendat allies. However, the Haudenosaunee are trading with the Dutch out of New Netherland, what eventually becomes New York after the British conquer it. And the Dutch have no scruples with trading firearms and weapons with the, well, primarily the Mohawks, who are the easternmost nation of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. So this divergent policy actually means that the Haudenosaunee are a lot more well-armed than the French allied nations. So the colony was feeling vulnerable. They were cut off from France, vulnerable for most of the year, and they knew they, they probably could not have withstood a sustained attack by, as they call them, the Iroquois. And that's before the arrival of a demon and a witch. Mary's looked into it, and she's certain the passengers on this ship in 1659 would have disembarked in deep water and climbed into smaller boats that brought them into the shallows, right up to the docks. And there, the weary travelers step onto dry land at last. And Mary's able to prove something for the first time. Among these weary travelers is a family with a last name, Allais, and included in that family, a girl of about 13, whose name is Barb. We don't know when most migrants landed. We don't have even a year, never mind a month or a vessel. But because strange things started to happen to this family, people recorded details about them we don't have for other people in New France. So for this family in particular, we have a letter by an Ursuline nun, Marie de l'Incarnation, who wrote about very strange signs that began to appear in Quebec. And she attributed the origin of those signs to the arrival of witches and magicians. The nun's letter tells us that this family and the witch arrived at the same time as the bishop. Mm -hmm. Because the bishop was considered such an important figure, we know exactly when he arrived, and that was in June 1659. Barb Allais, along with her parents, Mathurine and Jean-Baptiste, and her older sister, Marie, and her younger sister, Elizabeth, hadn't completed their full journey. Jean-Baptiste had already visited New France a few years earlier, and he'd signed a deal with a seigneur to rent some land five kilometers downriver. That said, it seems highly plausible to me they would have needed to pause before heading off there, and they would have taken the chance to look around the town. 
The upper town was where most of the prestigious buildings were located. You would see a college of Jesuits, a convent for the Ursulines, a hospital run by Augustinian nuns, and the residence of the governor. As she walked around, Barb would have definitely noticed something. She and her sisters were almost the only girls. There weren't a lot of female settlers at all. Depending on how we calculate the ratio, there might have been up to 12 marriageable French men for every marriageable French woman. And at 12 to 14, she was at the very low end of marriageable. Someone else was taking note of all this. The sullen man from the boat. His name was Daniel Vuil. He was not Catholic when he left France. He was Huguenot, which is a French Protestant, a Calvinist. And Huguenot settlers were not allowed in Quebec at this time. They were supposed to convert to Catholicism before they arrived. We don't know if he did or not, but this Protestant past seems to have tainted him. In his favor, Daniel Vuil had skills, namely mill operator. Millers lived apart from most other people in the noisy mill. And they had a special close relationship with the lord of the estate often. They were milling the grain brought to them and they were paid often in um, a proportion of that grain being brought. And they had a reputation for being dishonest about measuring how much grain they received and how much grain they gave back. So he's suspicious for a few reasons, but mostly because of this religious past where he wasn't Catholic and his occupation as a miller. Daniel soon scored a job. He began operating the mill on the estate of Seigneur Giffard of Beauport, who also happened to be the L.A. family's new landlord. Why do you think they hired a Protestant miller where there are just not that many milling technicians? They, well, they probably didn't hire a Protestant miller. By that period, he'd probably converted to Catholicism. Oh. So they probably hired a Catholic miller, though later records indicate perhaps his conversion had not been sincere. Mary's main source here is a collection of letters by Marie de l'Incarnation, the nun writing back to her son in France. But the letters don't spell out the details and the timeline, and some key plot points get missed. At some point... Maybe it was back on the boat. Maybe it's much later after scoping out the marriage prospects in Quebec. Who knows? Anyway, the Miller Daniel of Wheel begins to take a shine to Barb L.A. I'm imagining him quite a bit older, but we don't have a way to establish his precise age. He was planning on getting married, and the minimum age for the marriage of men, as said in canon law, was 14. So he must have been at least 14 years old. Because he was a Miller... I'm thinking he was older than that, since it would have taken him some time to learn the skills of a miller and become physically strong enough to do the work. Okay. If we were going to just pick something that sounds plausible, <laughs> 29, 30, 60? Uh, all possible? All possible. I, I think if he were 60, somebody would have remarked on that. For all of the attacks made against his character, nobody mentions his age. Mm. So he must seem to be a reasonable age as a witchy Miller <laughs> looking to marry a teenager. <laughs> 20s or 30s, maybe 40s. Right, right, right. So basically we, what we have to work with there is the sort of the bounds of what was acceptable for marrying 14-year-olds. Yeah, which were up surprisingly and disturbingly wide. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> K. 
Okay, so this 12 to 14 year old girl yep. heads off to a suburb of Quebec City. Now a neighborhood in Quebec City. Yes, but mm -hmm. uh, at that time, maybe just a, a, a house. An estate. There were several buildings on the estate, and the main one was a manor house built in 1642. That house was destroyed by a fire in the late 19th century, so we can't visit it now. But we can look at a photograph and an engraving from the 19th century that give us some idea of what this building looked like. Its facade was about 18 meters long. Its stone walls were very thick. Its roof was steep, and it had several stone chimneys. Inside, the building was a living space for the family and their servants, a chapel, and an office for the seigneur's administrative duties, as well as a public space for his judicial work. Oh, when you, get, when you own all the property, you get to decide. He gets to have his own seigneurial court. Oh, yes. nice job if you can get it. Again. Ancien regime privilege was pretty sweet. One day, Barbale takes a job in that grand manor house. She becomes a domestic servant to the seigneur's family. This means she lives with them now. And at first, everything seems completely normal. She's doing a typical job in a normal place. Meanwhile, in Quebec town itself, life also normal, typical, at first. We get a sense that the French habitant, you know, the, uh, the everyday French settler, they wouldn't have wanted to call themselves peasants, but essentially the peasant class, right, the farming class of the colony, that they did have a lot of fun. Um, card games were played. Even in the winter, we know recreationally, even ice skating was something uh, that was practiced. But, you know, I think in this era, there was a lot of anxiety and insecurity that at any moment, uh, a Mohawk uh, raiding party, you know, lay just beyond the ridges. <laughs> I think, actually, if anything, the winter time would have been more the season for fun and recreation than would be the summer when raids traditionally happened because that's when you would, would have been able to move via birch bark canoe on a lot of these waterways. So I think winter would have been more the time for relaxing, as sort of severe and as cold as the Canadian winters were compared to France. Between the winter of 1660 and the end of the summer, weird stuff begins. Marie de l'Incarnation, sitting in her convent on the hill, wrote about it to her son. In one of these letters, she mentioned some very strange signs that she and the other colonists had been seeing. They saw a comet. In the sky, they saw a fiery man and canoe and crown. In the air, they heard lamentable cries and a horrible voice. The fiery man with a canoe in the sky? That sounds mm. like a, the Chasse Gallery story, maybe, or something. <laughs> it does, kind of. The man and the canoe were separate apparitions. Oh, But they okay. were both seen, and the crown. Okay. So a mixture of European and North American images. All right. Mm. So this nun is either seeing some crazy things, mm -hmm. or she's nuts. Or she's reporting that other people are seeing these things. Then she explained that these signs were linked to the arrival of witches and magicians in the colony. 
know, the question is, you know, the French were so worried about demons, demonic possession, you know, Satan at work. Um, and yeah, in, indigenous peoples, when they encountered the French, they had their own, you know, very robust belief system. And a key concept, at least for a lot of Algonquin, Algonquian-speaking people like the Innu, the Algonquins, and many Anishinaabe people of the Great Lakes, they had this concept of Manitou or Manidou to describe an other-than-human person or power, someone or something that exceeded human abilities that could control and manipulate the natural world in extraordinary ways. And the French, when they heard of this idea of Manitou or Manidou, they would translate it sometimes to spirit, sometimes to God, sometimes to the devil, because it was outside of this sort of Catholic worldview. For the most part, Anishinaabe people and other indigenous peoples had very flexible spiritualities. So they said, sure, let's pray, pray to Jesus Christ and see what happens. They were very willing to experiment with Christianity. However, it was the Jesuits who were inflexible. So often you have exasperated Jesuits talking about, you know, devils and evil spirits and how Satan is at work in these missions. And, and they're exasperated with these indigenous belief systems. And I think if anything, this leads to further insecurity about, you know, witches and demons in New France. You're listening to A Demon Attack in Old Quebec on Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear Ideas on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Mary Cowan is a historian at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. She brings us details of an eerie tale from Quebec in the 1660s. It's the topic of her latest book, The Possession of Barbalay, Diabolical Arts and Daily Life in Early Canada. This microhistory involves an alleged witch, a demon, and multiple attempted exorcisms by leading figures in the town. Readers of microhistory get to know about people and events from the past that they might not otherwise see in historians' accounts. A microhistorian, who need not be a small person, inspects their object of study up close with a careful and detailed reading of whatever sources they can find. At the same time, this historian keeps in mind the wider context of those sources. Why were these sources created? What might be left unsaid in these sources? Which sources do we not have? As Mary Cowan sees it, we needn't believe in literal demons and witches to find historical truths in this particular story. Just attempting to make sense of what Quebecers thought was happening gives us a vivid picture of the time, the place, and the French colonial mindset. 
Ideas producer Tom Howell is finding out how Mary pieced that picture together. It's autumn, the year is 1660, in Quebec. Barb Allais' 18-year-old sister, Marie, gets married. Barb is now the oldest eligible daughter. And Danielle Vuille, the miller, is extremely cross. The story that we are told by Marie de l'Incarnation is that he had wanted to marry Barb Allais and claimed she had been promised to him. But no one would listen to him because he was a man of bad morals. So then the marriage offer was refused. And when this marriage proposal was refused, he grew very angry and envious. He grew so angry that he turned to the tricks of his diabolical art to win over what he couldn't get through the right path. Okay, this is the story as told by a Catholic nun. That's right. People at the time, people, the French settlers in Quebec, would have found it believable that that level of resentment of being denied what you wanted could spur someone onto witchcraft. Witches were thought to be envious, resentful people. And so it begins. One terrible night while everybody is sleeping, Barbelle <gasps> wakes up. We are told in one source that demons and specters appeared that terrified her. People saw phantoms in the air, they heard strange music, and then they saw stones detaching themselves from walls to fly around by themselves. Le lieu de la demeure de cette fille en était tellement infesté que l'on voyait les pierres voler de tous côtés, jetées par des mains invisibles, sans blesser qui que ce soit, quoi qu'elles passassent au travers d'une vingtaine de personnes, avec un bruit et une force aussi grande que si elles eussent été poussées d'un puissant bras. The place where this girl lived was so infested that people could see stones flying from all sides, thrown by invisible hands, without hurting anyone, even though they passed in front of about 20 people with a noise and a strength so great that it was as if they'd been pushed by a strong arm. And they send priests to exorcise the site. They even send their bishop to exorcise the site, but it doesn't seem to work. The one who came on the boat? The one who came on the boat. It does not work. Things get stranger, and the servant does supply us with a name of who is responsible for sending the demons. The servant, Barb. Yes. Barb tells us that the demons are being sent by a witch named Danielle Vuille. Okay, witchcraft. What's the, what's the difference between a witch and a demon? The witch is the human who is using dark arts. The demon is a supernatural entity, and sometimes demons are controlled by witches. Look, I think that generally they are extremely monstrous, grotesque, usually resembling some kind of distorted animal, possibly spewing fire or with claws and a long tail and, of course, horns. Sarah Ferber at the University of Wollongong, Australia, expert on the history and culture of demonic possession and exorcism 
within a Euro-Christian context. Sometimes part goat, part human, for example, all kinds of grotesque and terrifying images intended to inspire fear in the, in the viewers. Their demons are the demons of Catholic tradition and of Catholic medieval tradition and that fusion of the idea of kind of little spirit demons with a very powerful enemy of God is something that happened over time in the first millennium and a half of Christianity. My interest is in what institutions do when they are wanting to do good. So the medical institutions and religious institutions are singularly interesting in that respect. But in relation to demons specifically, their role in ill health is in a way to hide behind conditions that could be diagnosed, for example, as melancholy or later on in history as hysteria, for example, and through hiding behind apparent illness in this tradition, devils are better able to do to work against the goals of Christianity. So the job of the exorcist is actually to determine whether or not there is a real illness there or whether there's a demon there that needs to be gotten rid of because it is trying to a, steal the soul of the person who it's possessing, but also to work on a wider front uh, against God in the world. Keep away! The soul is mine! I think that the film The Exorcist actually shows some very clear pointers to how exorcism is practised in its most dramatic forms. It can take the form of just simple blessings or prayers, for example, but in many of the cases in the early modern period, a lot of them really resembled, according to the literature, resembled the story in the film The Exorcist, which of course is based on a 20th century um, account itself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, by this sign of the Holy Cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Using the crucifix to force the demon out of the person's body, praying, making the sign of the cross, all of those things are standard parts of the repertoire. There are long written accounts of instructions to exorcists as to what prayers to say, to whom they should direct their prayers, because it could be to God or it could also be asking a particular saint to deliver the person of their demon. And this is a way in which early Christianity, saints cults were promoted because their relics cured the possessed. That the power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. There were many practices that were seen as acceptable to some people in the church, but not acceptable to others. Endless indulgence of letting the demon from the person speak, for example, was regarded by many elite members of the church as poor form, that this was entertaining the demon and allowing the demon have too much free reign. The principle is that the demon be silenced and expelled. 
But in fact, in the early modern period, demons were allowed to say a lot. And in those contexts, that's when witchcraft accusations emerged, for example. And they could be very uh, clearly targeted at individuals as having that the demon would say, oh, I'm there working on behalf of this person or this witch sent me into this person to torment them and to ensure that, that they don't attain salvation. The power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. After the first attempted exorcisms fail, Barb gets transferred to hospital in Quebec. Danielle Vuille also gets transferred to prison. People were put into prison to await trial, not as a punishment once they're found guilty. It's the place you await your trial. Mary visited the archives of the Seminaire de Québec to look at the original Journal of the Jesuits. These are handwritten documents by priests who were there at the time. She hoped they'd be full of details about the criminal proceedings against Daniel Vuille. They were not. However... While I was in that archive, I was also brought to another document, this inventory compiled by the bishop about all of the pieces touching on a dispute that he was having with the governor. Among all of these pieces was a section about a certain girl infested with demons. And listed among those documents are items about the diabolical infestation containing information on how that infestation was detected documents about why Halle was thought to be innocent and what proofs had been obtained against Vuil. There were also some documents about the judicial process launched against Vuil. This seemed like a really promising path towards finding out what really happened to Daniel Vuil. Hooray! Right? This sounded great. But then I discovered we have this inventory, we have the original inventory to consult, but we do not have the documents themselves. The inventory is a list of documents that were sent somewhere, and we don't know where they were sent. I have not been able to track them down. Oh, boy. Mm -hmm. Do you think they exist? I think they existed. Okay, that's not the same. (laughs) Right at the time. Uh, They may still exist. I've looked in different places. I've looked in Canada and France and Rome and the Vatican, and I have not found them yet. So this was disappointing at first, but it's an ongoing search. Any movie adaptation will need to extrapolate wildly to show Danielle Wheel's trial. Mary's not even 100% sure he was charged with witchcraft. It might have been liquor smuggling. On the plus side, Barbalay's story from this point onward is much better documented. She was brought into a hospital called the Hôtel Dieu, and it was located in Quebec. By the time she got there, it was in the upper town at the same location that you would find it today, in Quebec City. She was brought there by order of the bishop and cared for by nuns who worked as nurses in the hospital. One of the sources we have about the hospital is a biography of the nun who took charge of Allais. And this is the vie, or the life, of Catherine de Saint-Augustin, written by Paul Raganot, a Jesuit priest and Catherine's confessor. Raganot tells us that Catherine cared for Allais day and night, and he characterizes the nun's efforts as worthy of a truly Christian heart. In the biography, she comes across as a brave fighter against supernatural threats, willing, maybe even eager, to die for New France. 
He describes her as saying she is nailed to the cross of Canada. And she's a champion fighter against demons. So how does she do it? Does the source tell us this? Well, at one point she sews Ale into a sack to defend her against her demonic attackers. And at one point, Catherine's arm is as black as ink from the hits she had received. From Barb. Okay, but Barb? We don't know. We're just told it's the demons. Okay, so Barb, we can't get inside her head, but now we've got essentially kind of a a witness or a corroborating Mm -hmm. thing because now Catherine is interacting with this demon as well. Catherine is interacting with this demon and the other nuns at the hospital are interacting with Ale. She is put in a little room next to the parlor. It's interesting that she's not put in the main room for the sick. They had a new room for the sick, which was probably quite a beautiful room with high ceilings and many windows, but that's not where Barb was placed. She was placed to the side in a parlor. And we are told that she was still agitated by demons at night, but during the day she helped to care for the patients. Well, that really teaches me something, because if I knew that you were infested, possessed by demons... In, they're not... Yeah, infested is a nice... It's it's a broader category than okay. possessed, but she's infested, according to one source. All right. But if someone said, Mary... Here's Mary. She's possessed by an evil demon. We think it might be the scariest creature in the world. Mm-hmm. Do you want to have her over for lunch? I mean, they might not, mm-hmm. or do you want her in taking care of your mother? You're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> one might, but apparently this is not a problem. What do you make of that? She's not considered very threatening when she's not showing signs of being controlled by the demon. Hmm. Did that surprise you at all? Or did, does that just seem normal? For- no, I was surprised by that. I was surprised that she is being treated as a sick person as well as a possessed person in this hospital. And they're not too worried either that she will harm the patients or that whatever is infesting Alay would be contagious and harm other people. Huh. Well, that teaches us something about demons, I guess. They're- it teaches us about what the people believed about the demon, at least. Catherine battled Barb's demonic possessions for months, possibly a year. Sounds like a bad news story, but Mary wonders if Ragnaud saw it as a public relations win for the colony. Ragnaud was deeply disappointed at what had been happening to the Christian missions in New France. The ideals that he came over with were receding from view as the missions were often falling apart. Many of his friends had died, and back in France, they were fighting to maintain support for these missions. The priorities were changing away somewhat from missions among indigenous peoples to trying to maintain the French Catholic community. And Catherine de Saint-Augustin was a good champion for that kind of mission. Through her efforts, he could show that The stakes were still very high. Cosmic forces were still fighting over the fate of New France, and the missionaries serving at the site were still willing to suffer and die for the fate of the colony. A cynic could say there's an element of, like, a letter to the investors here. Yep, yep. They were were certainly aware of the need to raise funds and political support back in France, which doesn't mean we can't trust the source— It means we have to be smart about how we trust it. The source tells us a lot about the reputation of this nun. At the Hôtel Dieu, Barb's demons came back night after night. 
In fact, it seems they were multiplying. They didn't even stop in the autumn of 1661. And you might have thought they would if Daniel Vuil was behind it all. Vuil was executed in October 1661. Multiple sources confirm this. These sources do not all agree on the means of execution or the reason for the execution. Some say he was hanged, some that he was shot, some that his crime was blasphemy or another religious crime, some that it was illegal trade in liquor. There is one source in particular that I think deserves special attention for its evidence. Among all of the sources, the Journal of the Jesuits was written closest in time to the event itself, and it was written for circulation only within the order, not for publication. Oh, it makes it more trustworthy. Might make it more trustworthy, yeah. And you say closer in time, like within was, a year? Within oh, a- at least, yeah, yeah. The The superior of the order usually wrote in this, if, if not daily, pretty close to it. Hmm. He's writing as things are happening. And that immediacy in time is made really clear in the exact words that the scribe used. He said that Vuil was hanged or rather shot, as if he is correcting himself at the exact time that he is writing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's highly plausible. So he, so maybe hanged, does that tell us that hanged is like maybe the hanged more, more common one? Hanged is more common. Shot is unusual. And so I think the scribe was maybe not thinking all that clearly as he began to write the entry and then remembered partly through that this execution was different. Okay, cool. Does that that doesn't help us figure out if they shot him for being a witch, though. It's not like witches get shot and regular traffickers get hung or anything. No, nope. no. Nope. It's we we don't know why he was shot. I rather than want hanged. to know. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> so far, we do not know. Yeah. but it's possible he was shot for being a witch. It's plausible. It's possible. Okay. Barb's family brought her back to the estate at Beauport. She even returned to her job at the manor house. After all, she seemed perfectly fine during the day. But still with the nighttime afflictions. Mary has a new source to work with here. The seigneur's wife, Mary Renoir. She wrote a memoir. We are lucky to have a record of Marie Renoir's own words. Renoir's account says that on or about the 15th of October, 1662... Between 10 and 11 at night, Barbalet was sleeping when a demon came to torment her, as was the demon's custom. <gasps> Marie Renoir got out of bed to help, as she was accustomed to do. This night, the demonic torment was worse than she had ever seen before. And it came into Renoir's mind to put a rib bone of the deceased Jesuit priest Jean de Brébeuf onto Allais' body. Strange that didn't come up before. She had tried relics of other saints and they did not work. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So here is how Renoir's account describes what happened next. She placed the bone against the side of Ale. Immediately, the demon became agitated, causing Ale to contort her arms and her legs and her whole body. The demon told Renoir to remove the bone because it burned. Renoir conjured the demon and demanded that he tell her the name of the person whose relic she was using. Conjured? Demanded that he appear and answer her. They argued. The demon said he would not answer, 
and Renoir said that she would not remove the relic until he did. They argued some more. Renoir said she would not remove the relic unless he consented to leave the girl. The demon refused, saying the girl was his. Renoir was forceful in this response, saying, You have lied, damned spirit that you are. You have nothing. She is mine. Our good God and her father and mother gave her to me. The demon continued to ask that she remove the bone because it burned. Renoir conjured the demon again, this time adding that she was doing this with the merits of the saint whose relics she was using, and she ordered the demon to depart. That seems to have worked. Renoir saw something like a breath leave from the mouth of Halley, who began to say the names of Jesus and Mary and Joseph and make a sign of the cross on her body. So the possession was over. Wow. Mm-hmm. Do you, how do you think the demon sounded when he was like, it burns? He ha- <laughs> Apparently he had a low voice. It burns. And he uses masculine grammatical endings on his verbs. Uh, yeah, well, I can't As do that. Demon- <laughs> As opposed to the feminine endings that Ale uses. It's never called an exorcism. I think it's very carefully never called an exorcism. It's called a deliverance and a relief and a healing, Hmm. though it looks an awful lot like an exorcism. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, those would be more medical words, healing. Yes, exactly. Words more appropriate to a laywoman running her household. A laywoman who, because she's a laywoman, was not supposed to be performing an exorcism. Right. And yet it was clearly demon-oriented rather than, um, you know, a low serotonin or something. Yes, yes. She is clearly casting out a demon. She is using the forms of an exorcism. She's employing a relic given to her by a Jesuit. Her account survives in three copies. And the account mentions that other people had heard about this. So this was not done in secret, but it's carefully not called an exorcism. It's some form of health care. And the real hero of the tale is not supposed to be Marie Renoir at all, but, but Jean de Brébeuf, the Jesuit whose rib bone is used in the ritual. And who some of us would like to be a celebrity that puts Quebec on the religious map in the Catholic world. Exactly. He becomes this champion for a colony losing support or at risk of losing support back in France. Gabriel Garcia Marquez wrote a wonderful novella called Chronicle of a Death Foretold, which is really a microhistory, but written by a fiction writer. And there's a line in it that I, I just love, uh, which I think explains what historians try to do when they do any type of history, but microhistories in particular. Colin Coates has also written microhistories, so he knows what Mary Cowan's been up against. And the quote is, uh, trying to put the broken mirror of memory back together from so many scattered shards. And I I love that phrase because it really is what the historians do. And you've got little bits of information that you're trying to combine into something larger to explain a story. One fact we know for certain, 
from the macro history of New France is that less than a year after Barb's deliverance from supernatural foes, thanks to Marie Renoir and the celebrity spirit of Jean de Brébeuf, the French king, Louis XIV, finally commits to supporting the Quebec project. And this means more attention, more money, more government, generally more support for this nervous settlement. In 1663, it's made a royal colony and it turns around, yeah. Is there any justification for saying that maybe this story helped swing it? I don't know. (laughs) 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 Okay, fine. But it might have done. Plausible. It's mm, possible. Okay. It's possible. Well, then, if that's not the big conclusion that this uh, demonic possession delivered Quebec into the administration of France, what other big sort of bigger questions, bigger ideas do you think emerge from this micro story? So although we can take it for granted today that New France would endure, after all, Quebec is in the same spot where it could be found in 1659. In reading through the sources from the mid-17th century, it's really clear that those colonists in New France were frightened. They worried about attacks. They worried the Haudenosaunee might attack. They worried the English might attack. They worried the Dutch might attack. They worried their leaders could not attract more people to come. They worried that those who did come were dissolute people with poor morals, liable to do more harm than good. And they worried, in short, their entire colonial endeavor might fail. And as for Barb Allais herself? She turns out just fine. Works as a domestic servant in Quebec, goes back to the Hôtel Dieu, but now as an employee, where she is paid for her work. Mm. She marries another servant from the hospital. They move across the river. They set up a farm. They have children. Their descendants are still there in Lévis. Mm-hmm. She leads, a, from what we can tell, a, a happy and normal life. For just an like habitat. Quebec. Just like Quebec. <laughs> yes, exactly. Happy life. <laughs> no, I know. I could see there being problems there, but that's for another show. Well, that's a great story and thank you for unearthing it and for uh, telling us all about it thank you very much for having me you were listening to a demon attack in old quebec this episode was produced by tom howell you can go to our website cbc.ca slash ideas to look at a picture of the demon-infested manor house at Beauport, taken shortly before it burnt down. You can also learn about Mary Cowan's new book, The Possession of Barbalay, Diabolical Arts and Daily Life in Early Canada. Technical Production, Danielle Duval. Web Producer, Lisa Ayuso. Senior Producer, Nicola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.